ಮಗ್ಯಾನತಿಮಿರಾಂದಸ್ಯಾಜ್ಞನಂಜನಶಲಾಕ್ಷಿಣ್ಮಿಲಿತಂ ಪ್ರಾಪ್ತೋಯಶ್ಚಿಪ್ರತೀತ್ರೀಪಾಯಶ್ರೀಗುರುಂತಂತಸ್ಮೈಂಚಾಕಲ್ಪತರೂಭ
Hare Krishna. <clears throat> so, as Navrasa mentioned today and, and throughout these weeks and months, I'll, I'll be traveling. I have been traveling. I'll continue to be traveling. I'm already a little tired just thinking of all the whole schedule, but I'm excited at the same time of being able to share with all of you. So I'm, I have published recently one book, and I'm sharing a few words during the lectures that I'm giving throughout this month on, on radical personalism. So in each lecture, generally, I try to connect with some of the many topics because it's kind of a multi-topic book. When people ask me what's the book about, I have a difficult time replying to the question. But of course, at least for me, radical personalism has to do with we are already personalists in our tradition. We are not impersonal. We are personal. But how much personal we can be? Is there a limit to how much we can be a person, how much you can be an individual? Is there a limit to how much Krishna is a person? He's, he's a person, but more specifically, he's the supreme personality of Godhead. <laughs> so that's pretty unlimited. <laughs> and, our, and our eternal prospect is to relate with such a person. To relate with a person who is unlimited so there are no limits into how much we can relate to such a person and probably there is no limit how much we can become a person in relation to such a person unlimited person so the book is kind of an exploration of of what does it mean to be a person and is there a limit to be a person and if not let's explore that unlimited potential to its very root the word radical has to do with something to its very root it's very core what does it mean to be a person in every single sense of the term how can we how can we are we related basically it's an invitation to ask ourselves are we relating to everything personally are we relating to each to ourselves as a person or sometimes we may be a little bit impersonal evasive indifferent to who we are and what we really need I don't know, you have to reply that question in your heart. I'm not trying to reply it for you. <laughs> I have to reply for myself. That's quite enough. Or are we relating with, with Krishna as a person? And, and as all that he is as a person. As we were talking yesterday in our meeting, sometimes we have a fixed idea of who Krishna is. And that's it. For us, that's Krishna. A certain concept, a certain idea, or a certain aspect of him. But he's unlimited. You follow my point. I mean, I relate to Krishna, but Krishna becomes at every moment more Krishna. <laughs> Krishna is not like a stagnant museum-like figure. He's always expanding and evolving. So we have to keep the pace of transcendence to relate to him. If we just say, oh, no, Krishna is this, and always was that, and always will be the same thing, that's pretty impersonal, in my opinion. <laughs> we are not treating the Supreme Person as who he is. So there are many ways in which we can explore how personal we are. And, and one of them that I want, I want to share today is more in connection, not so much in our relationship with Krishna or with ourselves or with others, but specifically with this world. How do we relate to the realm of matter? So, to, so today's topic or title, if you will, is the world of matter is also sacred. So I, I would like to share a few thoughts in that connection. <clears throat> because at least in my opinion, and I hopefully it's not only my opinion, actually this was in, in Shastra says, uh, the idea of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, 
or radical personalism. For me, radical personalism is another way of saying Gaudiya Vaishnavism, Krishna consciousness movement, is to integrate our humanity with our spirituality. Divinity and humanity are not like divorced from each other, but actually they, they need to be fully integrated because our goal as Gaudiya Vaishnavas, our goal is Nara Lila, what we call Nara Lila in Sanskrit. When Krishna appears being fully human and fully divine. Sometimes Prabhupada will use the term human-like, right? Human-like pastimes. But human-like doesn't mean like half-baked humanity. No, human-like. We are sometimes human-like. We are not that human as we should be. But Krishna is human-like in the sense that He's fully human and fully divine at the same time. So our, our ultimate goal includes full humanity. So we have to do something with our humanity here and now and spiritualize that accordingly. Mm-hmm. But I'm saying this because in some cases I've heard uh, from devotees, or and this is not only limited to the Gaudiya community, uh, certain emphasis in which aspects of our personality are not so much considered as, as noble, as glorious, as, as, as they actually are. Mm-hmm. So sometimes our body, our mind, our emotions are, not con- are, are considered something unbecoming in some cases, or even something worthy of being rejected, no? mm-hmm. which actually they need to be integrated in our human divine equation, ideally. Hmm? Because sometimes this type of downplaying of body, mind, emotions plays itself out as, as, as an extension, that, but it, as a downplaying, for example, of family life. No? You are family life, sorry, you fell into the dark well, what to do? No? But that's not actually true. No? I mean, if you are, I mean those, that expression is there in the Bhagavatam. And that's referring to someone who is completely uh, blinded and attached in a selfish way. As I like to say, as you have the blind well of family life, you also can have the blind well of sannyasa ashram, the blind well of monastic life. I mean, there are, there are blind, well, blind wells in every direction. <laughs> and there are enlightened paths of embracing each one of those ashrams as well. Mm-hmm. So, and Shastra says very clearly, you can attain perfection as a grihasta. So I like to tell the devotees, not only you can attain perfection as a grihasta as in, in, in family life, but the ultimate perfection you will attain will be family life. Golok Brindavan, you won't be a brahmachari in Golok Brindavan. You won't be a sannyasi in Golok Brindavan. So I, I have not to take this saffron very seriously because if I want, if I pretend to enter Golok, Bhakti Vedanta, Bhakti Pranaya, or whatever, no entry here like that, sir. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, eternal perfection is family life. It's not monastic life. So my point is, in our present stage of sadhakas, we need to make peace with those types of ideas. Because if not, we are kind of sabotaging our own eternal prospect. Mm-hmm. So there are many sections I won't torture you today with those, but in which our acharyas mentioned, you can attain full perfection as a sadhaka in family life. So there's, this is sannyasi telling that to you. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
And sometimes historically, I must I must confess, our tradition has overemphasized uh, asceticism and renunciation as something necessarily categorically higher. But actually, we are not after renunciation; we are after bhakti and the renunciation that comes as a byproduct of bhakti, but not renunciation that fosters bhakti because bhakti comes from bhakti. That's what the Bhagavatam say: bhaktiya sanjataya bhaktiya. If we think by renunciation brings bhakti, that's a contaminated form of bhakti we are pursuing. Because Rupa Goswami will say, Anyabhalasita sunyam, jnana karma adi anabritam. So our bhakti is devoid of jnana, devoid of the pursuit of detachment, renunciation for its own sake, or practicing bhakti to get mukti. And that's in connection to today's topic, because sometimes... I've seen the devotee thinking, okay, I have to leave this world as soon as possible. Hmm. So the goal of bhakti, bhakti ends up becoming some sort of evacuation plan for the afterlife. No, I'm practicing to leave this, this place as soon as possible. Hmm. And I consider many of these things are misunderstandings, that many of them are rooted. Okay, the body is bad, family life is bad. Hmm. These, these types of ideas, as our, our talk a, a few weeks ago, sex life is bad. No? Sometimes these type of ideas are there, intrinsically bad. But family life, if it's not bad, it's inferior, these types of ideas. And I think all these are rooted somehow in the idea that the world of matter is bad. So whatever is somehow tied with that is labeled as inferior. So here I'm today trying to demystify all those, all that stuff with your permission or without your permission, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> so our Gaudiya tradition is really very world affirming. It's not world denying. It's very validating of everything in connection to Krishna. We don't need to reject anything. The only thing to reject is the wrong view of what we are saying, I was sharing some classes ago. I had the fortune a few weeks ago in Alacha to meet with Sri Radhanath Maharaj, and he was kind enough to share with me a few three hours and 40 minutes. <laughs> that was a lot. And at and, and, and one point, he was sharing with me in this connection that once someone asked Sila Prabhupada, was telling Sila Prabhupada about, like, okay, I'm willing to reject everything for you. Oh, one disciple. So Prabhupada appreciated the, the, the disposition, but also he told him, the only thing you need to reject is the idea that you have to reject something. That's what you need to reject. <laughs> the idea that this is about rejection. Well, actually, it's about proper acceptance, proper integration, proper aligning. The only need to reject is the, the distorted vision. Of reality, Every, when you have the proper vision, there's nothing to reject because everything is a shakti of Bhagavan. Everything is an energy of Krishna. So, what what do I have to reject? So that's our tradition. Other traditions like Advaita Vedanta and so on, they may say, I don't know, Brahman Satya Jagan Mitya. This world is ontologically false, but that's not our philosophy. Our philosophy again is not about rejection. It's about proper integration. The Bhagavatam says bhakti you want to attain perfection in bhakti, you shouldn't be too attached nor too detached. 
Tezivatan. So not too attached in the sense of, of seeing everything with you in the center. That will be too attached. You see yourself as the center of reality. That's not healthy. But too detached to the point of rejecting everything as bad, that's also not, not favorable to attain the perfection of bhakti. Bhakti is the middle path to accept and to reject. Yeah, we have an accepting and rejecting, accept what's favorable for bhakti, reject what's unfavorable for bhakti. But this favorable and unfavorable are, is not about stuff, but it's about how we see things. <laughs> reject proper worldviews and accept proper perspectives, basically like this. No? So, so our goal is not mukti. We always say dharma, artha, kama, moksha, prem. So moksha has to do with leaving this world as soon as possible. Prem doesn't care at all for mukti in our tradition. That's what Mahaprabhu is saying. He ultimately said, I don't care for mukti. With all respect to mukti devi, <laughs> but a Gaudiya Vaishnava doesn't care for leaving this world as we will see some, some sections in, in Shastra that confirm this very clearly. We care for bhakti. Bhakti is the means, bhakti is the goal. We perform bhakti as, so we can perform more bhakti. Like once someone asked Sila Prabhupada, what's the result of, of chanting Hare Krishna? He very, without thinking it twice, very naturally say, the result of chanting Hare Krishna is that you will be able to chant more Hare Krishna. Because we are not doing that to stop doing that and start doing something else. <laughs> no? It's interesting because in other processes, the more they advance in their sadhana and get closer to their goal, the less they perform their sadhana to enter the goal. If I want to go to Swarga, I will engage in karma, different rituals, but the more I get to, and I will perform lots of tapas and austerity so I can go there and enjoy like nothing. <laughs> So I do all this stuff, so when I get there, I can stop doing all that stuff, and I can do what I really like. <laughs> so you start by, I have to do this, so I do what I want. <laughs> and in Gyan, it's similar, you engage in certain things, so you can merge into Brahman, and you forgot all the stuff you were doing before merging. But in Bhakti, you start doing Bhakti, and the closer you get to the goal, the more you increase what you were doing in the sudden stage. So bhakti is the means and bhakti is the goal. Hmm. So from the proper angle, from the bhakti angle, again, the body is not bad, family life is not bad, this world is not bad, uh, and the realm of matter. Why? Because the realm of matter is not bad. The realm of matter is actually sacred. Maya Shakti is not like a, like a, I don't know, satanic witch that is there trying to make us fall and enjoying when we are like, suffering in this world. Sometimes we have projected some kind of Gaudiya version of Christianity's uh, Satan or something, uh, Maya Shakti. And Maya Shakti is one energy in the service of Shakti Maam or Bhagavan. There is one nice verse in second canto of Bhagavatam, seven chapter, verse 53, just in case you don't believe me that that's in the Bhagavatam. <laughs> and the Bhagavatam there is encouraging to regularly hear about, describe, and sing the glories of Maya Shakti. In the context of it being a Shakti of Krishna, acknowledging this material energy is in the service of, of her source. So we are glorifying here. And it says, by doing that, you will free from all illusion. 
by praying Maya, you will be free from all Maya, so to say. <laughs> Let me share a few words of what Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur says in the purport to that verse. So you see that I'm not presenting Padmanava Sutra or Padmanava Siddhanta. It's Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur. Say, one should have faith that the material energy is a devotee with the greatest devotion. And therefore, a devotee should hear about such a devotee, since the Lord's Lila in relation to Maya is not Maya. Instead, it is something transcendental. So he's making that point clear. Material energy is a devotee with the highest devotion. So we are to hear about such devotees. What to speak about not downplaying them, not neglecting them, not considering them like profane. If we mistreat material energy, that's basically Vaishnavi Aparat, technically speaking. I don't want to put you in, into a neurosis, but that's that's technically speaking that. Because Maya Shakti is a devotee of the highest caliber who is serving Krishna probably way better than how I'm serving Krishna, at least in my case. So if I blaspheme matter, that's another way of saying Vaishnavi Aparat toward Maya Shakti. <laughs> you follow my point? Mm. So, so this material energy is, is engaged in the service of Bhagavan constantly, perpetually. Srila mm. Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur will, will compare this whole world to a big Arctic plate. Mm. He will say the Arctic plate is made of incense, flowers, so on and so forth. And those represent earth, water, fire, all this the basics, the elements. So the whole world is represented in that plate. What do we do with the plate? We offer it to Bhagavan. It's not that we do self-puja, so to say. No, earth, water, fire, all in the service of me. No, all in the service of the source. And then we take the remnants of that. So Prabhupada Bhaktisiddhanta will say, every ingredient in this world, like we call the plate paraphernalia, he says, every ingredient in this world is potential paraphernalia to be engaged in the service of Bhagavan. If you have the eyes to see, you will just see a plate of arty in everywhere, so, so to say. <laughs> Every atom is potentially offerable, is destined to be offered to him. So the real challenge is not so much I have to avoid matter, but I have to develop the eye of service, of seva, that allows me to connect everything to its source, including me, of course. So material energy is fully dedicated to the service of Bhagavan. Sri Bhakti Nautaka will say very nicely, matter is the dictionary of the spirit. Like if you go to a dictionary to look for the meaning of something, you go to matter, and that will hint, that will point, if you properly approach matter with the spirit of appreciation, not of exploitation, matter will point to its source. Material energy will speak about Krishna. Why? Because God is present everywhere. I mean, just a very basic definition of God is omnipresence. So if God is present everywhere, his presence is speaking for itself everywhere. In our tradition, we will say more technically, Shiro Dakasai Vishnu is in every atom, to be more technical. So just try to stop for a minute and think about that. God is in every atom. We were yesterday talking about that. Every atom is oozing 
with the presence of the Supreme. Every atom is an embassy of the Supreme Lord. <laughs> How can we call it? That's profane. I want to reject. I don't want to be in touch with that. I'm contaminated. <laughs> As we also yesterday quoted, sorry, I'm referring to yesterday's lecture. I, I cannot avoid that. It's always like a flow of topics. But we quoted Wendell Berry. I quote her in my book. She says, there are no, there are only sacred, she said, there are no profane places. There are only sacred places and desecrated places. Nothing is profane. Everything is sacred or desecrated. But we desecrated things by our own vision. But there are no profane things. Everything is intrinsically sacred. <laughs> we have this term in Sanskrit called sambanda, which basically means some, everything, banda means connected. Everything is connected with the common source. Even secular science will say everything is interconnected. Quantum physics will say everything has is connected with everything else. It's not that we have isolated stuff, isolated units. There is a common bond among everything. Mm -hmm. Of course, Krishna is the common source of that everything also. Mm -hmm. So my point is, if you have the proper eye to see, God will manifest everywhere, even from an, an atom, literally. Yeah. We have the classical example of Prahlad Maharaj. No? Prahlad was with Nishimha, uh, sorry, with Iranikashipu, as we know. Iranikashipu was not seeing God everywhere. I mean, he was not seeing God anywhere except in himself, but not in his heart, but I am God, <laughs> literally. And... Uh, <clears throat> Prahlad was seeing God everywhere. He had the eye of the Uttam Bhagavat, no, which is, he's seeing God everywhere. So, Iranika will ask him, where is God? Where is your God? <laughs> and Prahlad will reply in a very transcendentally naive way, very innocently, very naturally. He will say, where is God? And he will say, where is he not? <laughs> where is God not? I'm seeing everywhere. <laughs> where is he not? Uh, and Irani Kashipu will say, but is he in, even in that pillar, you know? And he say, Daddy, I told you, where is he not? Even in the pillar. And literally, Nishringadev appear from an atom, from a pillar, to show, to confirm the point we are making here. God is potentially in every atom. If you have the eye to see, if you have the bhakti to call him to manifest from that, he will do so. Hmm. Of course, the pillar was this size and the Srinadev was this size, but he managed to manifest from an atom, literally. Mm -hmm. And of course, someone may tell me, well, Maharaj, very nice, very romantic, all that you are mentioning about seeing God everywhere, but that's the vision of the Uttam Bhagavad. I'm not an Uttam Bhagavad. I'm not in that I cannot imitate. It's okay. I'm not promoting here any form of imitationism. But in one sense, we also have to learn how to say, in our present stage, how we can relate with the vision of the highest devotee. Although I'm not there and I cannot force myself into there, I have to establish some connection with that vision and, and make that vision my goal. Hunger for that vision. At least in theory, except, yeah, Krishna is everywhere. I don't see that. I don't feel that. But I know it's a fact. <laughs> and I know that that's the vision of the highest devotee and in my present stage, I want to 
long, I want to long and to hunger sincerely for that vision. I don't want to, to walk my life as if God is not everywhere, to, to over-localize him. Like, I mean, that's the vision of the Kanishta Bhakti, which is God is in the altar. And not only the altar, probably in my altar only. <laughs> but in the temple's altar and in my altar. Period. Bus. Dinabandu's altar? I don't think. I'm not so sure. He may have his opinion, which is in his altar, not in Namras's altar. <laughs> so that's a Kanishta vision. At least we have to begin somewhere. God is in this corner. Okay, let's begin somewhere. God exists in this particular corner in the whole creation, only here, which happens to be in my house. But anyhow, <laughs> God is there. Great. We have to begin somewhere. No, Krishna is very generous. Begin somewhere. But eventually, if you are properly doing your puja, so to say, you will start to feel the extended presence of your deity in other altars, in other people, in other circumstances, in other atoms, everywhere. No. It begins with your altar. It's okay. Great to have an altar at home. <laughs> but gradually, no, the Madhyam Bhakta will start to see Krishna's presence in other devotees, in other devotees of other traditions, and so on and so forth. Anutam Bhagat will see will say, I cannot not see God <laughs> some anywhere. So gradually we are to, to achieve that place. So again, as far as we may be from the goal, it's healthy to establish some, at least in theory, connection with okay, that's how rea reality should be looked upon in the ideal framework. I'm far from there, but I'm receiving this information. If you have the proper eyes. You will see God everywhere. So I know that that's how reality should be looked upon in the ideal situation. So I, I have to establish that goal so I can advance it with that goal in mind. So for us, Bhagavan is both transcendent but also immanent. He's everywhere. In Sanskrit, in Sanskrit sorry. In, in Western language, it's called panentheism. Not pantheism, but panentheism, which means... God in everything, and everything in God. Hmm? This is very easily show what Krishna is. Sorry, I cannot hear. Six thirty. He's saying six thirty. Oh no, I went to the Bhagavatam. Sorry, but yeah, Joman Pashyat Sarvatra Sarvanchamai Pashyati. That's Bhagavad Gita's version of the Bhagavatam description of the Uttam Bhagavatam. Yeah. For whomever sees me in everything and sees everything in me, I'm never lost to him. He's never lost to me. Oh, very beautiful. But I was going to the lila in which Krishna is eating dirt. No? And Yashoda called him. No? Because Balaram and other friends are, have reported him. No? Like, how can I eat, 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 eat dirt? And Krishna said, no, I didn't, I didn't eat dirt. No? They're, they're jealous of me because I always defeat them in in, in wrestling so now they're accusing me of something i didn't do krishna says no which of course is not true because krishna is generally defeated in wrestling with his friends but he's bringing some argument to no, to say I, I didn't need any earth so just as it opened open and of course she's she finds some earth there quite a lot whole planet earth inside but interestingly the vision she has is she sees the whole planet and inside that planet is Krishna. And she's looking at Krishna's mouth. And inside that mouth is another planet. It's like a kaleidoscopic 
vision, like what they call in, in, in Europe, how do you call Petrushka? These dolls that you have one inside and one inside and one inside, it's like, yeah. No? Dolls. yeah. Dolls. Okay. So at one point, just saw this, like, okay. okay. Well, but the idea was that she was saying, okay, Krishna is inside planet Earth, but planet Earth is inside Krishna. But Krishna is inside planet Earth, and planet Earth is inside Krishna. <laughs> so God is in everything, and everything is in God. Of course, don't try to capture everything in between your ears, because I'll, I'll start to see smoke coming in the room. <laughs> no, we, don't, we don't want to ruin the, the event today. So to cause a fire, a forest fire here with so much smoke. <laughs> but that's the idea. Krishna himself in the Gita, in ninth chapter, he's saying both spirit and matter are in me. She's not saying only spirit. I have nothing to do with matter. And Prabhupada, let me sh share a few words from Srila Prabhupada, what he says in his purport to this verse, this 919, nine just in case. Prabhupada says, for Krishna, there is no distinction between matter and spirit. In the advanced stage of Krishna consciousness, one therefore makes no such distinctions. He sees only Krishna in everything. Mm -hmm. So that's an interesting point. Krishna is not thinking spirit, matter, good, bad. This dualistic thinking is not in him. And Prabhupada say, and someone who is advanced, similarly, won't be making those distinctions. I always recall when Srila Siddhar Maharaj will say, describing this higher vision and say, some people doubt about the existence of, of, of spirit. And he says then, we doubt about the existence of matter. Because we see spirit everywhere. <laughs> he will say from that place, no? We perceive the presence of consciousness everywhere. So we doubt that matter actually exists. Huh? Hmm? <laughs> Interestingly. <laughs> Anyhow. So I'm saying these words so, so we can together reflect, okay, maybe my conception of matter needs to be a little bit like recalibrated, rewired, so we can really be generous, not only generous with matter, but generous with ourselves and how we choose to approach the world. Hmm? It's a lot about our angle of vision. It's not so much about what's out there, but how we are approaching that. Srila hmm? always will say, I mean, one particular incident once one devotee, and I, maybe I have quoted this 16,108 times, so I'm going for the 109 now. And the devotee will ask him, Guru Maharaj, can you give me some service? And Srila Maharaj will reply to him, change your angle of vision. That was the service. <laughs> the devotee came very naively, like he will tell me, wash the pots or clean the bathroom or do something, do stuff. And Srila Maharaj said, change your angle of vision. He gave him seva for eternity. <laughs> <laughs> and also implying, if you change your angle of vision, you won't need me to give you service. Because everything on your path will be a service opportunity. <laughs> no? so I like to define it. What we call problems are actually service opportunities. You ultimately, there are no problems. The actual problem is our unwillingness to see everything as a service opportunity. That's the only problem. <laughs> mm -hmm. So in that way, matter can, an unhealthy approach to matter, of course, can damage us, but not because of matter, because of our unhealthy approach to her, but a healthy approach to matter can totally enlighten and redeem us. No? 
like the, the famous Srimad Bhagavatam verse, the fifth chapter, first canto, which says, like a thing applied thera therapeutically, we say in English, therapeutically can cure a disease, hmm? which was caused by that very same thing. That's very much applicable to this particular situation. Hmm? So we can become diseased if we approach this world with an eye of exploitation, so to say, with an eye of seeing matter as something profane, but we can be cured from that same disease. We can redeem and heal our connection with the world if we approach matter with the proper eye, perceiving matter for what it is. We have to make peace uh, with this world, basically. We want peace in the world, but we have to make peace with the world, so to say. I will, I would like to share a few sections with the book in this connection, if you allow me. So let me share with you a few words from Srila Prabhupada from his purport to this verse, this verse of the Bhattan that I just referred to, the thing, a thing applied therapeutically can cure disease. This is Srila Prabhupada. That's why I'm Padmanav, just in case. He says, you can check, it's Bhattan 1533. So you, for those who doubt the, if I'm cheating you or not. <laughs> So he says, the material conception of a thing is at, one at once changed as soon as it is put into the service of the Lord. That is the sec secret of spiritual success. We should not try to lord it over the material nature, nor should we reject material things. Everything is an emanation from the Supreme Spirit, and by his inconceivable power, he can convert spirit into matter and matter into spirit. Therefore, a material thing, so-called, says Prabhupada, is at once turned into a spiritual force by the great will of the Lord. The necessary condition for such a change is to employ the so-called matter in the service of the spirit. When everything is thus employed in the service of the Lord, we can experience that there is nothing except the Supreme Brahman. The Vedic mantra that everything is Brahman is thus realized by us. That's very interesting. Srila Prabhupada is saying, by proper approach, everything is transcendental, basically. And everything is Bhagavan. Although for us, that sounds impersonal. But remember, that's half of the equation of Veda Ved, Achintya Veda Ved, which means from the Ved perspective, Sorry, Abed perspective, everything is Krishna. And we have to learn to be okay with that idea in one sense. No? Of course, also we have the Veda side. Everything is Krishna in the sense that everything is an energy of Krishna, intrinsically connected to him. Hmm? So in conclusion, as, as we have this saying in English, I think beauty lies in the eye of the beholder. So we could say also like profanity lies in the eye of the beholder. So if I see the world as profane, that's my eye. That's not the profanity outside my eye. So, so in that sense, it's important. If God, if the world is sacred, if Krishna is so present in the immediacy of this world, it's also important not to only conceive of Krishna out there, like somewhere far away, like above the clouds or something, <laughs> as sometimes we may think of. Like I'm over here, and he's over, and we point like geographically in 3D to some direction. 
so God is not out there, but actually the challenge is how to discover Krishna right here in the immediacy of my daily life. I always remember Thomas Merton saying, your salvation begins in the most ordinary moments of your daily life. <laughs> if you don't learn to discover God there, and you are just waiting for some extraordinary epiphany, so many epiphanies are already there, but you have to adjust your angle of vision. So why not discover God in the dirt and the mud instead of just waiting for him to descend from the clouds, so to say, another way of putting it. Hmm? And I would like to, to, to clarify a few points. We have a few minutes, right? Yeah. yeah. Because someone may say, okay, Maharaj, very nice what you mentioned, but for example, let's bring the Purva Paksha into the picture now. <laughs> cool, Pradeep is happy now that I say bring the Purva Paksha. <laughs> He was he was waiting there like when will come the Purva Paksha, Maharaj? I want some some masala here. <laughs> it's okay, I know Kula Pradeep. In his service, we will bring Purva Paksha into the picture, which means a Purva Paksha means like the so to say opposing view. I'm saying something. Okay, let's bring some antithesis to it. No. So we can say, okay, Krishna, but Krishna says in the Gita uh, things like Dukalayama Sashvatam. This world is temporary and miserable. Now that sounds pretty clear. So why you're saying all this fancy, nice stuff about the world of matter, Maharaj? But Krishna is saying, Dukalayama Sashvatam, the world is miserable, Dukha Alayam is an abode of Dukha or misery. And even if you think that it's not, Asashvatam is temporary. Something like it sounds like that. Not like you can say, no, no, for me, it's not miserable. I've just won lottery and I'm going to Cancun and traveling the world. It's full of joy. Sashvatam, Krishna will say, temporary. So just give a few days, if it's a little bit of time, and there you have it. <laughs> so one side you have statements like that. And on another side you have statements like, I don't know, Prabodhananda Saraswati saying, Vishwam Purna and Sukhayate. The whole universe is an abode of joy. So... We have to do something with those statements which seem to contradict each other. And of course, what to do is not, let's cherry pick the one that I like the most and, and put the other one under the rough. That doesn't work. That's not how we are harmonized statements in scripture, but we have to understand from which perspective each one is talking. So, of course, when Prabodhananda Saraswati Thakur is saying, Bishwam Purnan Sukhayate, this whole world is an abode of joy, he's saying, yeah, he's, he's seeing through that eye, through the eye of Mahaprabhu's mercy, that's in Chaitanya Chandramrita. But the point is, that's not false. It's not that, oh, no, no, he's, he's too biased towards Mahaprabhu or whatever, and he's seeing the world in a very extreme way. It's not actually that. No, it's actually that, if you open yourself for that particular grace. And what Krishna is saying in the Gita is more from the perspective of speaking to someone who is attached to this world in a very illusory way. Like, okay, I'm the center here and everything here is in my service and let's enjoy, basically. And that, in that case, that will be, the world is an abode of misery and temporary. Actually, the source of misery is your own selfish stance toward the world. But Krishna is mentioning in that way. It's like a mother seeing a child that wants to do some mischief and the mother knows if you do that mischief, you will suffer. But the child is, determined in doing it. The more the mother tries to prevent, the more he's receiving Udipana 
for doing mischief <laughs> more similar. So the mind has to say, that's bad, that's wrong. No, the, the, the plague is bad. There is a monster in the plague because she knows the, the kid wants to explore it. It's not that there's a monster in the plague, but, but she's expressing herself in that way, in, in a preventive mood to protect him. So in this way, we have this type of statements that, that we can harmonize in this way. Because if you go to places, I don't know, like Vedanta Sutra, you have the famous, maybe my favorite sutra there is Lokavatuli Lakaibalnyam. That's a very interesting sutra, which basically, it's a, I mean, lots to unpack in, in that single line, but basically it is implied this whole world is a lila of Bhagavan called Shristi Lila. And this whole world comes as a result of God's own joy overflowing him and that manifests in the form of this world. That's clarified by Baladev Bidyabhushan in his commentary. So that's a very interesting idea. This whole material creation is a byproduct of God's joy. So in other words, all the DNA of this world is sprinkled by Krishna's joy in the spiritual world. This world is Lila. Lila means... I, I like to describe it as a celebratory movement. It's a play, divine play. It's not karma. Karma is like a forced work, a forced labor. <laughs> Lila is more like, I'm moving, I'm dancing. I'm moving. In karma, I'm moving, I'm running, I'm trying to fulfill so many things, and I'm so empty at the same time. But in Lila, I'm moving not out of emptiness, but out, out of fullness. Karma is, I'm, I'm running out of emptiness. Lila means I'm so full that it's overflowing me and I need to wake up and dance and celebrate existence. Hmm? And Baladevidya Bhushan mentions Krishna's engaged in that celebration just like a drunk, drunk, drunk person in this world. It's just like dancing without any purpose. It's not like I'm dancing to attain something. I have attained something and because of that I'm dancing. <laughs> hmm? So Krishna is celebrating existence in this way. And one way in which his celebration expresses material creation, says Vedanta Sutra. That's in Vedanta Sutra. Hmm? So that's there. So in other words, this world is embedded with the per presence of, of the Supreme. Hmm? And what to speak of the principle of, of avatar. Avatar means divine descent. Krishna comes to this world. Mahaprabhu comes to this world. Not only once, but what Jiva Goswami mentions in Krishna Sandarva, he says, when Krishna concludes his Boma Lila, his Lila on earth, what happens? He immediately starts that same Lila on another planet earth. So strictly speaking, Krishna is performing his Lila on planet earth eternally. He's always on planet earth executing his Lila. So if, if the earth is such a bad place to be, well, tell that to Krishna, who is expanding eternity here. <laughs> Try to think about that. How, how bad is this place that Krishna chooses to come here over and over again, finding, oh, this is a perfect stage for me to perform my lila. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and if we are expected to serve Krishna eternally, we are also expected to join him in all those lilas. So probably our eternal prospect could be to remain on earth forever, also serving, accompanying him. 
so better we make peace with this world because we may be having an eternal prospect there. <laughs> so anyhow, my, my main point is a, a devotee, you ultimately doesn't care for this world, hell, Narayana, Parasarvi, Nakutashana, Vibhuti. Just in time. Last line was like... <laughs> <laughs> The Swarga, Paparga, Naraka. In that famous verse, say the devotee just cares for Bhakti, cares for pleasing Bhagavan, doesn't care for Swarga, for Apabarga, for Narak, no, for hell, for heaven, even for Apabarga, which means liberation, for leaving this world. A devotee doesn't care for that, says the Bhagavatam. She wants only, she wants only to offer service. She wants to bring down is a state of consciousness in the word of Srila Siddha Maharaj. It's not that it's a place that I go before attaining that consciousness. That's an important point. Huh? It's not that, okay, I live my life as I, as, as I think, not attaining Brindavan consciousness, but at the end of my life, I will be taken to Brindavan, in Brindavan consciousness with, without having developed that before. That doesn't work like that. So in this way, the boat is, is totally fine with rendering service, like Brahma in his famous prayer in the Brahma Stuti, he's praying like, I mean, in order to engage in bhakti, I don't care even born in an animal kingdom, I don't care even born like Uddhava praying also like a little grass there. If that facilitates my service to you, bring whatever forms will help in that connection. Bhakti Notakur, maybe even more boldly, will say, I don't care to be born as a Brahma if that gets in the way of my bhakti to you, but if being born as an insect is facilitating my service, ant body kijai, <laughs> basically. No, I don't care being born as a worm. That's his statement, which is, makes a point. Again, makes a point. Of course, he has his eternal identity, Kamal Manjari and all that, but he's making a point by saying that. <laughs> and that's the very definition of a Jivan Mukta. That Rupa Goswami gives in Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu. Jiva Mukta someone who is engaging body, mind, words in the service of Bhagavan. Period. She's not saying on the other side in Vaikuntha here. That's just speaking about a level of absorption and engagement. That person is already liberated. Because that person is not caring about liberation. That means you are liberated. <laughs> I once someone asked a devotee, like, Guru Maharaj, when I will obtain liberation? And the reply was, when you stop asking that question, <laughs> when you no longer care for that, the reply to that question, it means you are beyond liberation. Because our goal is not even liberation, but post-liberation. Prem is a post-liberated status. They are so much beyond liberation. I mean, our ideal of post-liberation post -liberation is the Brajabasis in Vrindavan. They care so little about liberation, nothing at all, they are so much beyond liberation that they seem conditioned beings. <laughs> if you analyze them like roughly, so like that seems ordinary. Uh, that doesn't seem like overtly transcendental. Like if you arrive to Baikunta, you have guys with four arms and things like you say, okay, I'm in another planet here. No, here is something extraordinary happening. If you see Brindavan like roughly, it seems like, oh, that sounds like my village and where I was born or whatever. But when you inspect in detail, you realize, oh, this is beyond Vaikuntha. Oh. 
this is like full circle. <laughs> they are so they care so little for liberation that they seem they even pray in ways that seem that they are conditioned, but they are so much beyond that. So much beyond that. But at the same time, they are completely in the present moment perceiving the the love of Krishna in every single corner. Everything is full of awe and wonder. Let, let me share one word one word of Srila Siddharmaras in this connection that I really like a lot. I think I have it here. Yeah. Srila Siddharmaras says like this. Everything is full of wonder. If we analyze the atom, we will be in wonder. Only we impose limitations. But when we analyze the atomic parts of wood or stone, we will be in wonder. The infinite is everywhere. Perfection is everywhere. The trouble is that with our limited thinking, we have produced a world of limits. That's it. That's the world of limits we have produced. But beyond that, perfection is everywhere. Wonder. He emphasized the word wonder, which for us is the essence of of rasa, rasa sar chamatkar, says Kavi Karnapur. The essence of rasa is chamatkar, which means astonishment, wonder. Jesus will speak like childlike. When I'm here with all these beautiful children, I really, I'm in, in awe, watching their awe. I wonder, watching how they're like, wow, no? discovering everything is new, constant openness to... As we said yesterday, also unconstant transparency, no filter. If they want to cry, they will cry. No. If we want to cry, generally, oh no, no, I'm in social gathering, I shouldn't cry. Here. At least I say, I have to go to the bathroom, and you go there and mm. <laughs> we have put on so many layers and masks of being so politically, socially correct, but the child is like, no filter. <laughs> And sometimes we feel uncomfortable because they are a reminder of what we are not doing and should be doing. No? So one of those things being being wonder, basically, no? incredible wonder. So so basically that's the idea. No? The spiritual world, in one sense, is not something, it's over there and here I'm totally disconnected from that. It's not a 3D geographical movement, but it's a state of consciousness. So the more we get closer to that in consciousness, we are there. Like when Mahaprabhu was in Jarikanda, he was perceiving Vrindavan. And Jarikanda was not a sacred place. It was a forest. Now it's a sacred place after that, <laughs> after Mahaprabhu finding Vrindavan there. So he showed Vrindavan is everywhere if you have the consciousness to tune in there. Or when, when Srila Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur said, receive from Gorkishore Dasbhavaji the instruction, Almost the first instruction he received was never go to Kolkata. And almost the first thing Prabhupada Bhaktisiddhanta did was go in there and open in Bhakvasar go to <laughs> someone asking, like, but your Gurudev told you not to go to Kolkata. And if that was the first thing you did, and he said, I never went to Kolkata. I always remained at the lotus feet of my spiritual master. <laughs> he made the point. Kolkata is a state of consciousness, <laughs> as Vrindavan. Or when, or when Prabhupada left Vrindavan to come here, and some people who, was in, who were in Vrindavan thought, why are you leaving Vrindavan? How can you possibly leave Vrindavan? So actually, those people who were thinking that Prabhupada left Vrindavan were not in Vrindavan. <laughs> because they couldn't see, he's not leaving Vrindavan, he's extending Vrindavan. <laughs> he's making Vrindavan's presence wider and broader. 
And the other people who stayed in Brindavan physically were not in Brindavan in terms of consciousness because they were thinking such a person like Prabhupada was to live in Brindavan. How can you live Brindavan if you are living in Brindavan inside your heart and extending that everywhere? So my point is Brindavan, the goal, our spiritual world, again, is a state of consciousness. It has to do with tuning in. It's not so much I have to go there or I'm leaving Brindavan, I'm entering Brindavan. So in, in that same way, God, Krishna, is not somewhere in the future far away. And sometimes we project God in the future, not in the present, and far away, not in the immediate location we may be in. But actually, he's there. He's already as close as he can be. <laughs> but we have to be present in his presence, basically. It's not so much about reaching there, but I will say continuing to arrive here. We are already here, but how much we are present in the presence of God in the present moment. So everything is already present with us now, but are we present to that? That's a question. So sadhana means that. Yes, tuning in to what's already happening in the here and now, not so much future, far away, but now and, and here. Mm-hmm. Attaining heaven, so to say, attaining spiritual world, begins here, begins now. If it doesn't begin now, it will never begin, basically. It's not that I'm not att- We have to start attaining the spiritual world. You follow my point? That's sadhana. It's not like sadhana is I'm doing something mechanically, formulaically, and at the end of my life, I expect some magic to happen. And oh, I'm here in Golak Vrindavan, and, and, and someone will come, okay, your name is such and such, and your service department is in that kunja. Your name, and that. So you will receive more information in that department. You go there, <laughs> and you have no clue what's going on. Okay, I'll go there. No, no. All those things have to gradually manifest in our heart. That's that's how you attain that. It's a state of consciousness. Again, that's it. There has to be a healthy beginning point to that. So I, I personally feel that highlighting these points and how Bhagavan is so close to us is a very healthy way for us to engage in our practice instead of feeling, oh, Krishna's over there on the other side of the ocean, so to say, of milk, performing lila, and I'm here, so much distant. That, that, that doesn't create a healthy uh, worldview, way, way of approaching our practice. Instead, if we understand, oh, Krishna's as closer as he can be, and I just need to gradually connect with that, that's much more user-friendly and real. It's not that we are creating something so it works better for us. Mm-hmm. So anyhow, a few words I want to share today to make this point that the world of matter is not bad. It's not against us. It's not indifferent to us, but it's totally for us, totally in favor of us. Mm-hmm. So much, It's so favorable that Krishna descends over and over again to this world to execute his lila perpetually. So that speaks for itself how favorable that can be. Let me conclude with one quote from the book and with this. We, we, if there are any questions, we can have a few minutes for that before Prashad. So a few words from here. It says like this. Let's do wrote up this. It says, every corner is the potential birthplace of the kingdom of God. Sorry if I become a little too poetic here, but I can understand. Every corner is the potential birthplace of the kingdom of God. Everything there is, is potentially accessible from where we are. 
It's not about going anywhere, but continuing to arrive perpetually. If we put on an entirely different mind, then heaven takes care of itself and in fact begins now. So it is nothing we have to believe in for later. If we don't touch upon life now, why would we believe it in it afterward? The Gaudiya challenge is to thus bridge this unnecessary gap in our own minds to the point that the sweet absolute becomes discoverable through matter. And by such an exercise, matter is then brought back to her deserved place of honor. So, Maya Shakti Ki Jai, <laughs> material world Ki Jai. Anyhow, some words in connection to this comes mostly from the last chapter of, of radical personalism, what we have been sharing today. And if you have any questions or comments, something you may like to share, we have a few minutes yet. So, you are more than welcome. Also, there are some devotees connected online, also invited to share if you want. <clears throat> Thank you. Really. Thank you. <clears throat> um, I was just reading in the Chaitanya Chaitamrita this morning. That, yeah. Um, there, you know, Prabhupada quoted from Bhagavad Gita that Krishna makes the distinction of the in energies. He has an inferior energy, which is maybe you could say matter, mm -hmm. and nature, and then the superior energy, which are the jivas. About that, maybe the Vishnu Tattva, but I don't remember that being part of the verse. But anyway, how do we uh, harmonize, you know, because my wife and I, for just to give some context to where we're at right now, we just spent a whole week going to weddings and associating with our karmi uh, friends. And, uh, you know, I don't like the word karmi, just in case. <laughs> but yeah, continue. Associating with our... Uh, Non-Gaudia friends. Non-Gaudia friends. <laughs> and... Uh, we feel it. We feel like significantly our consciousness has been run through the, the dirt, so to say. Maybe it's a good thing. But so how do we uh, harmonize, you know, trying to keep our consciousness lifted? And, and we tried our best, mm -hmm. but we felt the inferior nature, of it, <laughs> so to say. So how, how do you pick that up in the midst of a, an energy that really does drag you down? <laughs> okay, thanks for the question, the concern. Yeah, sorry to make that clarification on karmic friends, but it's just at least my personal taste. I don't want to impose that on anyone else, but I, I, I prefer to to refer to... No, I don't even like the word non-devotee because there are many devotees in different traditions also. You know? So sometimes we may end up being too exclusive. Like, and non-devotees, whomever is not a Gaudiya Vaishnava, it's like... Well, St. Francis seems to be a pretty nice devotee, right? I would like to have the level of passion he has, he had, no, and so on and so forth. <laughs> so regarding your question, yeah, of course, Krishna uses the, the expression inferior energy, higher energy, power shakti, and so on, to make some distinction. At the same time, we have what we read today, that in, from Krishna's own perspective, there's no distinction in one sense. So sometimes he uses certain expressions to instruct us uh, but in the ultimate level of seeing, again, if you see Krishna everywhere, you see Krishna everywhere, period. Of course, again, that will be my final reply. You just see Krishna everywhere. That's it. And it's like, 
Thank you, Maharaj. But I don't think that's possible. It's not that Krishna ever wore button. And <laughs> so, but but I will make a distinction in what you mentioned. You mentioned okay, I was in connection with some to some friends, and I felt the the the, the influence of that connection, so to say, and 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 we could put that okay that was the influence of material energy and that was inferior and, and, and we make this type of sequence but the point is again material energy in itself is not inferior in terms of dragging me opposite in the direction opposite to krishna in itself material energy as we mentioned is is a shakti that is serving krishna that's stated in shastra many many times it's described as a maid servant of bhagavan and so on and so forth so I would say that what's dragging us down or what represents an undesirable influence, so to say, is those people, and we may be one of those people, just in case, who do not understand actually what material energy is about. I mean, the people who are bad association in our terms are not people, I mean, we call them materialists. But for me, strictly speaking, a materialist should be someone who properly honors matter. <laughs> if you want to redeem the term. A materialist is someone who takes care of matter, honors matter for what it is. That's real materialism. Of course, most people who are materialists uh, are those who exploit matter, neglect matter, are selfish, and so on and so forth. But they are not representing what actual material energy is about. They are representing it a misunderstanding of what's the world. And that's why their, their influence is distracting because they themselves are distracted. I don't know if that's clear. I mean, if, if I found someone who properly honors matter and connects with matter in a healthy way, I wouldn't be disturbed by the association with that person. Actually, by definition, that person will be a devotee. <laughs> so, so I will say that what disturb, and I don't want to talk, about you and what you experience, but what, what you say, what disturb you in that association is not so much the inferior material energy, but certain people who do not understand what material energy is about, actually. And they are trying to exploit the resources of this world. And that becomes like, you feel the, so to say, the lower vibration. So in, in that case, of course, the Shastra mentions if we don't have the level of adhikar that you can be everywhere and anywhere and don't, don't be affected by anything, one has to take some proper distance, of course, respectful distance, but also not so much point like, oh, they are so whatever, no, so mundane, and that's why they disturb me. <laughs> I will take a more humble position, hopefully, hopefully. I don't know if I will do it, but I hope I, I may do that, that this... At present, I don't have the capacity of relating with those people without being disturbed. <laughs> mm -hmm. Not like neurosis and it's my fault and bring me the whip, but just like taking responsibility. Because if I increase my love for everyone, there is a point in which I won't be disturbed by them. But actually, I, their conditioning will inspire me further compassion, further love. But I'm not in that situation. So I will take a distance so I can work on my own self better and I can render them better service also. No? So I personally choose to take that stance instead of 
oh, we'll take distance from them because they're so contaminating and they're so bad and I'm poor me, I'm affected by them. And one starts to play victim consciousness. So I prefer to take distance. I can always do something better myself to relate to them in, in, a, in a better way. So the rest is each one of us have to ascertain where we are in those terms and take the proper, the appropriate means and measures. No? I have some thoughts in that connection. I hope that helps. <clears throat> More Purva Paksha from Kul Pradeep. It's not, it's not really a Purva Paksha. I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm joking. No, but I, I, it's because that the idea of an eminent theology, I, I find very important to myself. So a lot of what you're talking about, I, I value. So I'm going to put this question in multiple dimensions. I haven't, I don't know if you addressed in your book. I don't know, I may not have talked. So let me just start by saying, so it's a little anecdotal. No, no, no. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, so I, I, in Vrindavan, there was this really big debate about the value of love in the world or desire in the world. And can it connect to the okay. transcendence of the world? And this was at, at the Jiva Institute. Yeah, yeah, I saw it. Yes. And I posed a question there. Huh. Such an Ryan Bhavaj. Hmm. I said, well, what, what is the value of, the, of is love in the world? Can there be any value with it? Can it connect to the transcendence? Hmm. And he said very emphatically, he said, I don't know how many times I have to tell my students this. But what we experience, in, we have no experience of what we will experience in the transcendent world. We, mm -hmm. There's no knowledge. We have no knowledge. We can even speak about it. Mm -hmm. Everything in this world is completely different than the, what we experience. Mm -hmm. in the mm -hmm. So that proposes is that well. What did about, what did Jagadananda say in reply? Well, that was the thing. The debate, <laughs> the debate continues. Yeah, of and it's been like it's it, it's been like centuries debate, really. <laughs> And his, but see, but such a Narayan Babaji's argument is philosophically sound because it's the same kind of argument that Sankhya makes between Purusha and Prophet. Mm. It's the same thing you say about like Shankaracharya and Nirvachaniya. can't speak about how mm. Rahman gets contaminated. Mm. So the first part of this is what, what do we know? How do we know that there is a relationship between an imminent theology and a transcendent? We have no evidence that they could be connected, that an imminent theology would lead to a transcendent theology. Mm -hmm. so that's the part, part part one. The second part involves uh, one verse, and one thing you, you had said that I found very thoughtful. So the first thing is the verse. Do you mind me doing this? It's not being indulgent, but I really care about the topic. The first verse is, uh, it's in the Gita, Brahma Bhutta Prashana Mana when somebody has this state of Brahmabhuta, mm -hmm. like when you see, like they see the spirit Brahma in everything, mm -hmm. that person can become will will come to me. Mm -hmm. They can become Madhvakti Then they become they can become mm -hmm. the devils. Mm -hmm. At first, I thought, oh, I would say that, and I'd say, like, well, we have to we have to cultivate Brahmabhuta to be a devotee. Mm -hmm. so bhakti is independent. Mm -hmm. So why does it need to have Brahmabhuta to, to, for us to get Bhakti? Bhakti mm -hmm. only begets Bhakti, mm -hmm. not Brahmabhuta. Mm -hmm. So I thought, oh, I can't give that. It's not it's Siddhanta. Only Bhakti gives Bhakti. Mm -hmm. And not to say that Krishna was wrong. <laughs> he says it himself. So I stick to that Bhakti as you, you also Then you had also said to me, 
that um, you had said once at Dennis, we have witnesses that God's omnipotence, that God's you know its omnipotence is uh, uh, omni uh, is all knowingness. That's hmm. just a fraction. That's just a small part of God's wonder. Mm -hmm. All of these things about you know connecting in the universe, speaking to us. That's just a small part. Krishna himself is completely independent mm -hmm. of all of these omni whatevers. Mm -hmm. So that gives me this idea that also that God is completely independent also. And so when we talk about going back to Brahma Buddha or Shanatma, that only gives that this kind of eminent theology that we're speaking about mm -hmm. only gives us knowledge of Brahma Buddha. Mm. It doesn't really say, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're that's Krishna person, Krishna's personality mm. in Vrindavan. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. So that's my understanding. You can tell me I'm wrong. I'd like to know that. <laughs> <laughs> because for me, it seems like it's probably just completely independent. Krishna, Krishna's Leela, transcendent Leela. Mm -hmm. It's not something we could understand. The best we could probably understand in the world is Brahma Buddha. Mm -hmm. That Brahma Buddha understand the consciousness mm -hmm. in the world. One other thing. I okay. <laughs> and this is this is not Purva Paksha at all, and no, don't I, think it's going to. Such a little child. Um, but the Thanks for the points. We have to cancel lunch. <laughs> <laughs> yes, as I was saying yesterday, each one of these questions is served their own three-day seminar or something like that. So probably with this, Kul Pradip is creating Samudipana for future more detailed, longer meetings because they are very valid questions, very interesting. <clears throat> Yeah, there are many things to say in that connection. Of course, we can, uh, to begin with, okay, someone say, okay, Brahma Bhuta, all pervading aspect of God, or even you can say Paramatma, one of the, Paramatma is in every heart and is in every atom. And someone say, but Bhagavan, Krishna, he is some, he's, that's something different. And I agree, of course, for some reason we have these three. Distinctions, Brahmeti, Paramatmeti, Bhagavaniti, Shabdhyati, and in Bhagavan we have so many Bhagavans, so to say, and ultimately Swayam Bhagavan. So that hierarchy is, is, is there, and, and I'm not trying to to cancel this Paribas Sutra of the Bhagavatam, Krishna's two Bhagavans, I am. But at the same time, we should, again, we should be nuanced enough, enough to navigate this Veda Veda equation in the sense of. Okay, Brahman, Paramatma, and Bhagavan are 
three different what Jiva Goswami makes the point in the Bhagavad Sandarva is these three these three are not three aspects of God, but he will say there are three three levels of approaching the absolute. Because the absolute is non-dual, it's advaigyan. No, that same verse is mentioning the absolute. I'm sorry if I become a little too technical to reply to the question. Bhagavatam is the famous verse, Badanti Tattvabidas Tattvadagyanan Advayam. says, reality is Advayagyan, it's non-dual consciousness. So you cannot say Brahman, Paramatma, and Bhagavan are three different guys. <laughs> or even Narsimha, Ram, Mahaprabhu, they are different people. And I mentioned this point also in the context because sometimes I've seen the devotees being quite dualistic without having a proper non-dual foundation. They relate to Ram, Krishna, Narayan, Mahaprabhu. They relate to them as if they are different people, different personalities. Well, actually, we are talking about the same non-dual substance. So when I was talking today about, okay, God is everywhere. God is omnipresent, every atom and so on and so forth. Someone may say, okay, but that 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 can apply to Bhar to Brahman, to Paramatma, if you like, but Krishna is transcendent. He's engaged in Lila beyond and so on and so forth. But again, how much we can make a difference between Krishna and Paramatma, Krishna and Bhagavan? In one sense, we can make a difference, but in another sense, we cannot make a difference. So so that's one of my points. You no, know? like we cannot fully divorce the two because if not we are being dualistic we are going against the Advaigyan foundation to reality and even to say more and I mentioned in my last chapter of the book there is one chapter in Bhagavad Sandarbha I, I, I don't recall exactly which Anucheda in which Jiva Goswami specifically speaks about Bhagavan's uh, all-pervading presence everywhere and he uses the term Bhagavan he's not saying Paramatma he's not saying Brahman like implying the fullest face of the absolute is Bhagavan. So naturally, Paramatma Brahmanis are included in that. So how much we can say. So from that perspective, I, I have been making the points I made. Uh, <clears throat> at the same time, in terms of an immanent theology and a transcendent theology, uh, as I mentioned before, you, know, you say, okay, the Lila of Bhagavan has nothing to do with this world. It's totally beyond this world. But the Lila Fagavan is coming to this world over and over again. So, how much we can, like, <laughs> I mean, if, if, if you are in the Boma Lila with Krishna here, which is the idea, you know, when Brishmana Chagar Thakur mentions that's in Raghavarma Chandrika, if you attain Prem in this lifetime, in your next lifetime, you will be born on a planet Earth in which Krishna is performing his Boma Lila. So what will happen there? I mean, you, what, what will you take Krishna? This is not transcendent Krishna. This is not. And there are many quotes in Krishna Sandarbha in which Jiva Goswami makes a point many times about Golok and Gokul bring down on earth, bring down on heaven, so to say, are non-different. And even if you want on top of that, sometimes you will find quotes that you will add the one on earth is better. <laughs> Some of Kavi Karnapur will say, for example, oh, on earth, Krishna is lila. In, in, on earth, Krishna is born. In Golok, Krishna is not born. He's eternally Nitya Kishore, Navayava. On earth, this is, there is this chronological unfolding. So the, the Bhoma lila has some added features 
that you are not finding there. I mean, again, they're not different, but at the same time, you have this difference there. So, so I'm making that point that the lila is transcendent, basically has to do that it has no influence of illusion of material duality, but beyond that, I mean, if you play out in the implications of God being unlimited and infinite, infinite means infinite possibilities. So why Krishna cannot be here performing his lila on earth and at the same time being fully transcendent and immanent at the same time? And for us, it's it may not work. We need a more clear distinction, but for him, he's okay with dealing with those with those paradoxes. And also going going to the debate that you quoted made in, in the in the Jiva Institute. I've saw I've seen it like a few years ago. I don't recall the details of it. I may have to see it again. That will be interesting. But also when we say, is there love in this world? Also, again, there are words, but what do we understand by love and this world? <clears throat> so that's my point. If you are, of course, there are these shaktis that we make a difference on certain stage. I wrote my whole first book on that topic. <laughs> there is a shakti called bhakti shakti. <laughs> uh, in connection to what you mentioned, that someone also may ask, so what's the purpose of our our sadhana? Is that makes any sense, and so on and so forth. But I will say, well, if if you, and that's a separate topic, and I won't throw you into that direction. That was the topic of my previous tour. <laughs> But if you are, uh, agree that bhakti is not inherent, then the purpose of sadhana, I mean, has a lot to do with that because you are receiving bhakti, and and you are further through sadhana, furthering open yourself, opening yourself to further receive and honor that particular bhakti, and bhakti is the goal. So whether when you receive that bhakti, you continue embracing that bhakti because bhakti is sadhya and bhakti bhakti sadhana bhakti sadhya. So. I continue performing my sadhana, not even like as I mentioned today, not trying to attain something different from that bhakti, but continuing celebrating bhakti in my life, basically. So, <clears throat> but I think it's important to clarify when we say love in this world. Well, what's this world? Because again, you can have a jivan mukta, a prema bhakta in this world. I mean, Prabhupada had prem, let's say. He was in this world, but he was not in this world. So we have to start to enter into that nuanced thing. Okay, he was in this world, but he has a pure love that is not from this world. So he was in this world, but he was not in this world. So all the things need to be clarified instead of, is there love in this world? But what do you mean by this world? And what do you mean by love? Because again, for some people, love means only prem. And for other people, love can mean Instead, the word prem also in Shastra is used for different, can be used in terms of not necessarily divine love. So my point is, it's a nuanced topic that sometimes we cannot just reply to the question, is there love in this world, yes or no, but we need to. And I agree that there are different Gaudiya Vaishnavs who may have different takes in that debate, and I'm okay with that. I love debates, <laughs> as you know. <laughs> <laughs> In certain way, as long as they play out in certain way. But anyhow, a few words that requires way more, and I'm sure I didn't clarify the whole thing in detail. And I'm not saying I'm, I will be able to do so because it's an ongoing conversation. So I, I appreciate you brought the topic to the table. 
there's one brief question here by Rupa. Can I mention that briefly, or we, we don't have time? That's my no, question. No, we do a few minutes for that, and then a few minutes if you need us in for like 10 minutes. And then okay. So one last question from yeah. Rupa. Then we can continue sharing informally, Senoplon. Rupa who? Rupa Patel. Oh, okay. Kumari's husband. Yes, yes. This, actually, this is a question from Kumari. Okay. So she says, how do we understand when Vaishnavs say things like wicked witch Maya? How do we understand and respect that perspective? Mm. Mm. Yeah, valid question. One could say, well, Bhaktinath Thakur no, composed Jeep Jago. Yeah, and then Maya is referred to as Pisachi. Mm. And we also have this Bhukti Muktis Prihaj about Pisachi Hiridivartate, this verse in Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, where <clears throat> Sri Rupa Goswami refers to Bhukti and Mukti as Pisachi also, no? which means witch. No? So that sounds a little bit like opposite to what we're sharing today. No? Instead of, okay, on one side you have Maya Shakti as a Vaishnavi with the highest devotion, and on the other side she's a witch. <laughs> no. Maybe a witch with the highest devotion? <laughs> Actually, I will say that when Bhaktan Thakur, well, let's go first to Rupa Goswami. He's saying Bhukti and Mukti are like witches. But actually, Jiva Goswami, in the commentary to this verse, he clarifies, Bhukti and Mukti are somehow prescribed in Shastra for certain people, but they are there. So we cannot call something prescribed in Shastra as a witch, <laughs> because what Shastra prescribes is legal, so to say, for one people or another. So what he mentions is, actually, Bhukti and Mukti are not witches, but the desire for them are witches. No? Like, like we become, how do you say in English, bewitched? That's a term? Bewitched. So, so we become bewitched by, by, by desiring, by in themselves, they are not witches, so to say. So this is our desire for that. So I will say that when Bhakti Nautakur is saying that Maya is a witch, I, I, I will say he's speaking there about the potency of Maya Shakti to bewitch. But it's not that it's a witch. And, and actually, the potency of Maya Shakti to be witch has to do with how we approach Maya Shakti. Because if I approach Maya, in the more broad terms, Maya, with a proper spirit, that Maya will appear in front of me as Yoga Maya. <laughs> There's Maya in transcendence, but that's called Yoga Maya. It's facilitating Krishna's service. But if I approach that same principle, from a perverted place, so to say, that will bewitch me. Mahamaya. Mm -hmm, exactly. Mahamaya, Yoga Maya. So both there are Maya, but the effect is it's bewitching in both because Yoga Maya is also creating a divine bewitching, so to say, in the Lila. Yeah, yeah, yes. Creating so many particular dynamics there. So I would say when Bhakti Thakur is saying that Maya is a witch, he's mostly talking about our wrong, wrong approach to that principle of Maya and how the principle will respond to us to hopefully educate us in that connection, but not as, okay, this energy is intrinsically ill motive, bad in nature, and so on and so forth. No? Yeah, basically that. Because on the other side, you have Bhakti Notakur saying so many other things about like, again, I don't have a problem coming to this world over and over again, and in my house, Golok is revealing no, in Saranagati, he's singing like that. Golok appears at home. So he's not 
like a world denying Acharya, so to say. Anyhow, I hope that helps. Kumari Rupa, Pranam from Namrasa's house, and we will conclude here. I'm sure a little bit more now. Thank you so much. Shriman Mahaprabhu ki jai, Sri Harinam Prabhu ki jai, Gaur Bhakta Vrinda ki jai, Gaur Praman, Naribo, Vancha Kalpatarubhya, Kripa Sunduhye, Patita Anampavane, Bhyo Vaishnave, Ananta Koti Vaishnava Vrinda ki jai, Gaur Haribo. Thank you, Maharaj.